Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And during this section we see David, and especially David, is underneath the hand of God's discipline for what he had done in chapter 11. Now we often think chapter 11 happens, Psalm 51 happens, and then that's all done. But the consequences of that are before David's eyes. He's living in that discipline. And over the last few chapters, we've seen this unraveling of this promise given to David. Now you could maybe ask that question as we've read through, is Amon this person who is going to be raised up out of David's house? Is it going to be Joab? Um, But we find out it's Absalom. Absalom is where this all tension centers around. And now where we left off is Absalom is in Jerusalem. We saw this right at the end of chapter 15. And Absalom was entering Jerusalem as Hushai was coming out. And David is marching out towards the wilderness. Again, that that Exodus uh, echo that we see. David, the chosen one, leaving the promised land to go into the wilderness. And the ark is sent back to Jerusalem. And the people of Israel are not following David. There's a small group that is following David, but the the height is, is Israel is now following a king. The false king with the false promises who has perverted justice, turned. And they're following him because of his stature. He's following him because of his, his personality. And they turned down David for a Saul version 2. Ahithophel has now sided with Absalom. Hushai has sided with David while pretending to serve Absalom. And the question that we've, we've, we've been asking during this time, that, that one Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, and we see who that is. It's Absalom. It's, it's uh, Ahithophel. It's all of the people of Israel. Now, we need to be reminded of two things before we look at chapter 16. And both are related to David and his character and his heart. What makes David different from Saul? Again, it's not that he is perfect or he's sinless. But when Saul is confronted by the prophet Samuel about his sin, what does he do? He blames everyone else. Well, it was the people who did it. And eventually he does repent, but it's just this false sense of repentance. Whereas David, when he is confronted by the prophet, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And now David, under the hand of the Lord's discipline, understands that his sin is really critical to what has happened. We saw this in chapter 15. The king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I have found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. 
see here, like it's about God's view of what David has done. He understands that it, this is not merely just coming by chance, but this comes from God's fatherly hand and his hand of discipline and love. And David is a son. Whether he realizes that terminology, as, as the author of Hebrew puts it, as he's quoting Proverbs, again, you can see that connection, David and Solomon and Proverbs, and now the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The author of Hebrews goes on to explain that when the Lord disciplines you, it's because you are his sons. It's not comfortable, but it's, it's from the Father's love, loving hand. And I think David understands this in this time. But the second thing about David that we need not forget is that he did not stop from worshiping him. Towards the end of chapter 15 was David is coming to the summit where God, where God was worshipped. And he goes up and he worships God. Now let's turn to chapter 16 with those two things in our mind. An interesting chapter because we have chapter 19. Chapter 19 puts a lot of light on what is happening here. But we're not in chapter 19 tonight. We're in chapter 16. So I'll try not to race ahead to chapter 19, but we'll focus on chapter 16. So as David is now fleeing the city, he's past Mount Olives, Olivet, and he, he's left Jerusalem. The ark is back. Absalom is coming in, and he's going out towards the wilderness. As he's leaving, he's met by Ziba bearing gifts. We see this in verse 1 to 4. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, a hundred of, of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why, do you, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who, who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will be, give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Now we remember Ziba all the way from chapter 9. He's the man who oversees the, the uh, land of Mephibosheth. He's a tenant farmer. As David is now walking out into the wilderness, he's met by Ziba with a great abundance of supplies. A couple of donkeys, uh, loaves of bread, a bunch of raisins, summer fruits, and wine. And uh, David asks the question, why, why did you bring these? And Ziba had a, a reason for all of them. Well, I brought the donkeys for the king's household to ride on, the, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, the wine for those who were faint in the wilderness. Now, at first we look at this, and what a kind gesture. What a thoughtful gift. 
But at the center of this text is not necessarily what Ziba gives to David. It's what Ziba, Ziba says to David. Mainly in verse 3, he asks, David asks the question, where's Mephibosheth? Ziba is the, looking after him. Um, and Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Now there's something interesting here in, in chapter 16 and even in chapter 19 that is put together. Now, we need to connect these dots a little bit in this portion, but it doesn't take long for us to be able to see it. And that is a reminder of the house of Saul. We've almost gone for a long time without the house of Saul. He popped up again in chapter 19. But we're reminded now of the house of Saul. It doesn't seem to be direct to us in the first four verses. But we are reminded of who Ziba is, who Mephibosheth is. And David asks the question, where is Mephibosheth? Now we remember chapter 9, where David asks the question, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? And then again in verse 3, There is not still someone in the house, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? And Zebub said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And this relationship between David and Jonathan, this covenant that they made, David wants to continue that covenant to his child, Mephibosheth. Now Ziba, at this point, we remember pointing out that maybe he mentioned Jonathan to be able to see how David was, what David was going to do. Is he tricking me? But he does. He lavishes uh, his, his, remembers his covenant with Jonathan and he, he brings Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, into this house. He, he treats him like a son. However, when asked where Mephibosheth is, you think he would be one of the people that would be marching out with them, showing his loyalty to David. Because at this point, people are choosing sides. And David asks, where is he? Where's Mephibosheth? Ziba tells him something to the effects, well, he's been waiting for this day all his life. He'd been waiting for a moment to be able to seize back the kingdom which he thinks was wrongly taken from him. He wants to continue the line of Saul. Now we know from chapter 19 this is not the case. We actually find out more about this later. But there's a, a slight bit of truth in Ziba's comment about Mephibosheth. Not so much about Mephibosheth, but about Ziba. Ziba says Mephibosheth is trying to make the most of this opportunity. However, we find out in chapter 19 that's not actually the case. It's actually Ziba who's trying to make the most out of this opportunity. And we need to understand that in situations like this, when, when the winner is not known, people often start to be able to move their, their pieces on the chessboard to try and predict what is going to happen. 
to ensure that they're looked after. And they think of themselves. And Ziba is probably thinking, if I can help David, and David comes back to the throne, then I'll be in his good books. I'll continue in his favor. But if not, maybe Absalom won't hear about this. Or maybe there's Mephibosheth that I can blame back in Jerusalem and said, well, he told me to go give this to them. You could throw Mephibosheth under the metaphorical chariot, I guess. But without jumping into chapter 9, we need to be reminded that, that David doesn't know the whole story, but yet he passes judgment incorrectly. He says, all that's Mephibosheth is now yours. He hears the news of Mephibosheth shutting the door, and I guess you would think the same too. Mephibosheth has been sitting at your table like a son for all these years. And now you hear he's, he's turned his back. He's not grateful at all. And again, Ziba makes the best of every opportunity that's in front of him. I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. But we need to be reminded that in the end, there's probably going to be a lot of Zibiaites. <laughs> Ralph Davis puts it this way. Ralph Davis said, Zibianism can be both blunted, blatant and subtle. And we must be beware of bewailing the grosser samples of such averse and manipulation lest we uh, be obvious Oblivious to their polite forms, the essence of Ziba's approach was to make an impression, an image, a profit from it. We need to be all concerned that Zibia is focusing on himself and externally look at what a kind gesture this is. What, what a great heart Ziba has in this opportunity and this time. When we show concern for a brother or a sister, but ultimately underneath the motive is not for them, but for ourselves. Are people seeing me do this? Are people appreciating me? There are many questions you might see. Judas did the same thing, right? When... Jesus' feet was been washed, and that uh, ointment was poured on his feet. What was the question that he raised? What a waste! We could have sold it and given it to the poor. Externally, looking the part, concerned about the poor, everyone's looking at Judas. Oh, Judas, such a kind heart. But what did Judas do? He went and sold. He took the money for himself. Even he betrayed Jesus for much less. And we should be very careful to walk in this way. And not 
that we should never do those type of things. But the truth about sinfulness is that it goes deep inside our hearts. But the law is not all that we do. But a lot of what the law speaks to is our heart, our motive. That's why an unbeliever can't do good works. Because the ultimate end is not to glorify God. It reminds us of the extent of this sinfulness. That here, if we were just to read this passage, we would know all about how to serve and love our brothers and sisters. But just as Samuel told Saul in chapter 15, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Again, Saul is, I did all the right things externally. But yet, he did not obey. But we'll see Ziba again in chapter 19. Next, we meet Shimei. See this in verse 5. When King David came to Baruim, there came a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. And as he came, he cursed continually. Now again, these might seem like two disconnected stories that the, the author is just merely just piecing together a couple of things. I need a you know, I wanted to add a little bit more flair to the story, so why not add this part? But, but we not, must point out that, again, in chapter 16, we have these two side by side. In chapter 19, we have these two side by side. The author is making this connection, and why is he making this connection? This connection is, is because of the house of Saul. And I think that's the clearest connection that we see. But this, this Shimei comes out, he's cursing David. And when David is on his deathbed with Solomon, he puts it this way in Second in First Kings chapter two. He says, "And there is also with you Shimei the son of Girah, the Benjamite from Baruim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim." So he looks back on this moment and we see that it's not merely just he cursed him. David reflects in this grievous curse. And David is facing opposition from everywhere. Notice where it's coming from. His son, the people of Israel, the house of Saul, Israelites. And as we pointed out in chapter 15, the people who are loyal to King David often are those from other countries. I would say the true people of God are the outsiders, and the ones who are meant to be the insiders are actually the outsiders. The house of Israel is against him. The house of Saul is against him. Now, just a side note. Notice even here, we've hinted at this before, but But even here, we see 
that the, the kingdom is somewhat divided in this time. A Benjaminite. That we see these divides already in the kingdom. But here is Shimei cursing David. We see in verses 6 to 8. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of the king David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged you on all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, as we've gone through, remember all the way back to 2 Samuel, even to 1 Samuel, about David's blood guilt, especially when it comes to the house of Saul. The author spent a lot of time pointing out that David was not responsible. He did not order. He did not then uh, condone the actions of those who did take lives of those in the house of Saul. David didn't take Saul's life, although he had several opportunities to be able to do so. He did not encourage anyone to take the life of another Think of those three men that came and boasted, the first of boasting of killing Saul. Although he didn't do it, he came and boasted, thinking he would get in his good books. And what does David do? Puts him to death. The two men that come back and boast about killing Ishbosheth, the same. Now, there's a slight, maybe a slight different situation with Abner, where again we see David's innocence in this. It doesn't seem that he, he, Uh, treats Joab with that same uh, type that he did for those who boasted about Saul and Ishbosheth. It wasn't as harsh. But even in that passage, we're reminded that David did not know of what was happening. But it doesn't mean that everyone knows this at this time. And Shimei believes that he is a man of blood. And what Shimei is saying is that you are a worthless man. Now, this word has come up several times in 1 Samuel. The first time was actually with Eli's sons, where it said they were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. And here Shimei is watching from the outside, and he says, this is God's hand of judgment on you for the blood which was shed for the house of Saul. Now, Shimei makes a very important connection. Shimei is saying that King David is the bad guy. He is a man of blood. And he believes this judgment has come because of David's, what David did to Saul's house. Now, we know more than that, don't we? We know that it is from the Lord's hand that this has come upon him. The sword shall never depart from your house. Not because of the house, the blood from the house of Saul, but because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
Now, if there was ever a case to be made of, of an Old Testament example of the two sons of thunder, you would have it with these two brothers of Zeruiah, Abishai. He's happy to offer his services in verse 10 and said, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. It's very kind of him to offer his, uh, his opinion. Now, here's the key. If David was actually to be able to say, Yes, go and do that then Shimei's accusation would be quite true. That he was merely just a, a, a man of blood, taking out and wiping out anyone who would oppose him. And I don't think Abishai really understands the king very well. How does David treat dead or dying dogs? Again, think of that connection back to chapter 9. Mephibosheth says, What is your servant that you should show regard to a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth is like, Why would you treat me in any other way? I am but a dead dog. And Abishai says, Well, here's a dead dog. What do we do with dead dogs? But here, the, David doesn't treat him like a dead dog. The sword is just never satisfied. As Abner told Abishai's brother Joab after ki- killing his other brother Ashahil, when he said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? That here is all this conflict going on as as David's leaving Jerusalem, but the highlight really comes in verses 10 to 12. When the king answers, the king said, What have I to do with you, the sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing, because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for for his cursing today. And he turns to Abishai, specifically at the start, and then Abishai and his servants. And he understands as he's marching out of Jerusalem that this is from the hand of the Lord. This is the hand of discipline from God. And he walks this path knowing that it's God's hand. And it's God's hand that is in this. And he says, leave him alone, for God's hand might be upon this. But the climax of all this conflict that is going through in this period of time here is in verse 12. 
It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Again, one of these famous statements that David says throughout all this time, it may be. He does not know what tomorrow brings. He does not know what the outcome will be. He has no idea of what uh, will happen. Will his life be taken by his son Absalom? Will he spend the rest of his life wandering in the, in the desert? There's no promise from God about what is going to happen here. But he says it may be. He doesn't assume to know God's plan, but humbly walks that path which God has placed him on. Now I think you could sit here and really unpack this verse. You see God's sovereignty and providence even in this verse at this time. David is on run because, on the run because of his son. He's been cursed by someone that we've never met before, Shemai. Yet he sees God's justice. But he also sees that God's justice is not blind in this time. He says, God would repay me. God sees this, even if it is discipline. And even David understands that this bad thing that is happening to him here with Shimei cursing him is, is able to be used for good by God. That God would be able to repay him good because of this evil done to him. It's a phenomenal thing to be able to think about here as David's homeless, walking out with all these people around him, He'd been betrayed by his son, who wants his life so he can have his crown. And David says, whatever wrong is done to me, doesn't matter. God can repay me with good. And we don't have time to be able to unpack that in a Puritan way. But, but notice David's resolve in this time of his life. He doesn't seek to blame others but to trust God. He doesn't seek to avoid the path which God has placed him on, but he walks it. I think once you study the life of David, you really begin to unpack that glorious verse which says that he was a man after God's own heart. He doesn't want to behead Shemai. Because he knows that it's not really going to solve anything. Either from discipline from God or a blessing from God. God is going to work how he's going to work. Now let's take a quick moment to be able to connect this to Christ. Now I think here you can see David as a type of Christ. The Christ was cursed for us. But I think we should point out a couple of things here that should make us really want to, again, thank God for, for Christ. The first is to do with Ziba. Notice how with Ziba, he, he gets, Christ gets information. Uh, David gets information and immediately he says, all that was Mephibosheth is now yours. He passes judgment, but it's the incorrect judgment. 
But for Christ, he knows that heart. He knows those who are externally just looking for gratitude or or leg up or some political maneuvering. Christ judges perfectly in the end. Not everyone will say in Matthew chapter 7, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Could you imagine Ziba standing there? Well, Lord, Lord, didn't you see all the glorious gifts I gave? The things that I've done. Are we not thankful that Christ knows the intent of the heart? Who judges perfectly. And he knows who are his. He's not fooled by flattery. He's not fooled by gifts and words. He knows the heart. We'll see this in chapter 19. But secondly, regarding Shemai. David, as he's walking out of Jerusalem... And Shimei is cursing him. He, he, he is a man of blood. This is the reason why he's not to build the house of the Lord. But he walks out and as Shimei says, as, as he's underneath the discipline of God, that David has his own sin that he is responsible for. Although you might not agree with the accusation which Shemai makes, that he's, he's avenging the house, of, the house of Saul. We know his innocence in that part. But he is, rightly to some extent, to be cursed. For he is a man of blood. But are we not then thankful for Christ, that Christ is sinless? Unlike David... Richard Phillips really made me click with this idea when I read this quote. When we consider the matter of bearing sins, however, we see that the typology of David to Christ relies on a contrast. While David was humiliated under his own sins, Jesus bore the sins of his beloved people that he himself had not committed. David could bow his head before curses that he deserved, whereas Christ labored in pain under curses that he did not deserve, but lovingly bore for the sake of those who believe in him. That as we look at David and we see the shadow of Christ, we see it is but just a shadow. A shadow with many holes and flaws. A shadow even that that doesn't even display the whole beauty of Christ because we need the whole Old Testament to show that. That David is bearing the curse from God because he believed he was cursed for his sin. But Christ bears the curse for God, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. That it was his plan, God's plan, God's plan to be able to crush him. As 
Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written under the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit of faith. Here we see Christ. David cursed for his own sin, but Christ is cursed for our own sin. Doesn't that not make you want to sing out and say, thank God for Christ? Now we need to remember that this is merely just a part of these men's stories. We'll meet them again in chapter 19. But do we have any questions or comments? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.